Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of, Ju of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance? O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please do keep your Bibles uh, open. We're going to be referencing this passage quite a bit, especially because I did not read the whole thing. But if you're just joining us uh, right now in person or online, again, my name is Evan Skelton, one of the pastors here. And it really is a privilege to have you, whatever it brings you through these doors. It's very common for people to be in very different places uh, spiritually when they come to church, uh, when their relationship with God. You may not even be entirely sure where your relationship with God is right now. Nonetheless, we just, we really do want to extend a welcome to you, not just from this church, from, but from the Jesus that we worship. He calls the lost, the lonely, the broken, the poor, all to come to him if they'll but confess and admit what's, what their lives are actually like and look to him for rescue. And so, we are just so glad that you would be here. If you have questions about our service or anything that's said or done, please do grab me or one of our other elders, Larry and John. We'd love to fill in those gaps for you. You can also grab somebody with a hello tag. Um, and uh, they're, they're the people in the know, if you will. So we, uh, it's, a, it's great for me to be back with you this morning. I was traveling with my family last week. And we're kicking off today a new series called uh, Our Eyes Are On You. And if you are listening in that, in that uh, um, reading that we just had, that uh, phrase comes from this passage. Our eyes are on you. Is, uh, was uttered first as a prayer by Jehoshaphat, who um, was uh, facing insurmountable odds and very aware of his own powerlessness. And he cries out desperately to the Lord in a kind of a prayer that I think we want to use as a model prayer for us this morning. We're going to unpack why and why it's so helpful for us. But as we look at prayer over these next few, few weeks, this is actually a perfect place to start with this passage because this passage starts us in a place of desperation. We're going to find it that desperation is really crucial, fundamental, essential to a life of prayer. And uh, if you've not experienced that life, uh, you've not experienced desperation in your prayer life, um, or it's been a long time since you have, I, I, I hope that after today's service we'll see why, uh, how God produces that kind of desperation in us and why it's so essential in talking to him. Um, we uh, are again intentionally beginning this year, though, in a series on prayer. 
I think the question that comes from that is why? Why would we begin in all places of prayer? Shouldn't we begin with like mission and vision? What's the vision we have for the year? Well, tell you what, we need to begin with prayer because uh, I think many of us are going into this year, just honestly, uh, already exhausted. Anybody tired of 2021 already? After the headlines this week? Okay, so nonetheless, 2021, it looks a lot like 2020, like many of us thought it would. We're facing a lot of the same uh, exhaustion. The, uh, it's proving to be as shocking and difficult as the previous year was. We don't know what the next months hold, but many of us, I think, are desperate for the, have the same kind of desperation Jehoshaphat had. We're desperate for things in our family life and our friendships. Um, We're desperate for transformation in our addictions and sorrows. We're We're desperate for God to move in our church community, for God to bring healing to our nation. You know, I'm carrying the sense of desperation, to be honest. There's plenty of things I'm hoping for from this year. I really need God to provide. But I'll tell you why this series is even more important for a local church like ours, specifically for Bayless Baptist Church, because this church, like every single local church, has a mission that's been entrusted to them by Jesus Christ. And we're desperate to be faithful in it, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. You know, it's no secret that three years ago, our doors at this place were almost closed for good. And it's only by God's interrupting grace that they're open still. And I have to tell you, if God, by his mercy, chooses to keep our doors open, let alone keep any other church's doors open, it's so that they might continue to be active, faithful in that mission that he's entrusted for that purpose of glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's why we exist That's why we show up here. It's to worship God and to make disciples. It's the work that Jesus has entrusted us. And even now we face, just to be honest, and I have no problem being honest about any of these things, that we face some real barriers to that, specifically as it pertains to our self-sustainability, to us doing this for generation after generation after generation. And more importantly, we we face some barriers to our faithfulness in this task that we prayed three years ago we might that God might allow us to be active in once more. And let me let you in on a secret. Um, I have no idea what is best next. And neither do our elders. We are desperate for God's wisdom. We are desperate for courage. We're desperate for provision. We're desperate for God himself to intervene, even still. And yet the Bible tells us that You know, it not only asks that kind of desperation of us and says it's actually a very good place to be, it actually says it's a terrific place to be because with desperation also comes a sense of expectation as we go into this year. And this expectation is what we're going to be unpacking today. This expectation that God not only knows us best, but loves us best, and he is able to save. I can't wait to step forward to you in, with you in the next season of what we're calling desperate prayer and expectant faith as we see what happens when our eyes are on God. There are a few places better to begin talking about the relationship between desperation and expectation than 2 Chronicles 20, and I hope you will keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at it in three parts— Really, three statements, if you will. And the first of those statements is prayer is the strategy. Prayer is the strategy. Oh, it looks like I didn't update those slides. You can keep those blank for now. Prayer is the strategy. Now, picture it, if you would, with me. Messengers 
have just made it to the palace walls, to the walls of Jerusalem, desperate to get to their king, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now, you probably have heard this name before. Anybody heard Jehoshaphat? Usually we hear it as kind of like a, one of those like mild, uh, mild expletives, okay, like Jehoshaphat. Okay, this, is not, this king was actually a very important king in Israel. So um, the, uh, they're desperate to get to this king of Judah, though, with uh, some news that every king in the ancient Near East would dread to hear invaders. Moab, along with Ammon and the Arabs of Mount Seir, are likely on a vengeance mission to Judah, ready to crush that little nation as they're on their way to Israel. And they have pooled together their three nations into a massive army for an all-out attack. One, a a kind of attack that uh, Judah knows it will lose. Judah was outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. So you know Hamilton, excuse the reference, but the, what, do we, what do they do? What, are they going to make an all-out stand? Have you ever had a moment in your life where the bottom just fell out and everyone is looking to you, to you to know, what, well, what are we going to do? I've been in those moments many times in my life and not sure what to do at all. And can you imagine the pressures that Jehoshaphat felt at that very moment? Is it any wonder that the verse that verse 3 tells us that he was afraid? That's just being honest. Still, as a good king, King Jehoshi, if you will, is decisive. They wouldn't wait to be overrun. No, they would act. And so he set his face, verse 3 says, set his face to do what exactly? To destroy his enemies? No, it says to seek the Lord. Just think about it. All those pressures on the king, who at this point is likely very old, and his first impulse is to pray. And not just a, hey, let me drop off to my prayer closet real fast kind of prayer. Not just the, hey, let me give a night to think it over kind of prayer. No, Jehoshaphat, he acts in the face of his enemies when the pressures are on by calling his entire people to corporate, desperate prayer, even mandating a public fast. How would you respond if a, nation, a, a national leader mandated a national fast? <laughs> Maybe we could use one, right? So nonetheless, but this here is a national fast that he, for the sake of prayer, and the uh, uh, Jehoshaphat doesn't just call soldiers to Jerusalem, but warriors, in other words, of a different kind who came with their king to pray. Let me ask you, What do you do in a crisis? When fear begins to turn up the volume in your life, I don't know about you, but either I start burning the midnight oil trying to plan my way out of it, or I start watching way too many action movies. Anybody else like that? Uh, Still, some of us resort back to uh, old habits, some very destructive ones, perhaps pornography, alcohol, something perhaps even more dangerous like drugs or sex. But Jehoshaphat doesn't merely cope or distract or even plan his way out. Instead, in the very midst of his very real fear, he calls everyone around him to join him in prayer. This actually leads to the very first remarkable quality about Jehoshaphat and his prayer recorded. And that's the first, I get the first mark again of this prayer is it's, de- it's deliberate faith. Excuse me, let me say that one more time. The first mark of this prayer is its deliberate faith. Now, I say deliberate 
Because I think when it comes to faith, some of us have some rather watery notions about what faith is. Some rather sentimental ideas that we have to, in many ways, have updated, transformed, uh, changed, redefined by the Bible. We, many of us, think that faith is something like uh, crossing our fingers for good luck, something like a religious way of hoping for the best. But I want you to notice how the passage describes faith here. Now, later, Jehoshaphat will explicitly command his people to believe. He commands them, believe. Now, even that's difficult enough for us. Individualists like us don't like being told to do much, let alone to be commanded to believe something, commanded to trust. Of course, this won't make sense if we carry with us this idea of uh, close your eyes and hope for the best. But instead, faith means something much bigger than that. Notice how verse and 3 and 4, it, uh, puts this, it pictures this belief with this phrase we've already, I've already mentioned, this phrase of seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat and his people gathered to seek the Lord. What an interesting phrase, seek the Lord. Is it because God's playing some sort of hide and seek? What does this mean? Have you ever thought about what that phrase means? The image is actually of giving something your exclusive attention, of fixating on something without letting go. It's like my toddlers when they're hungry coming to their mom for a snack. They won't leave her side until their hunger is answered. This idea of fixating or focusing our mind's attention on something and refusing something refusing anything else to steal it away. John Piper puts it this way, both the Old and New Testaments say seeking is setting the mind and heart on God. It's the conscious fixing or focusing of our mind's attention and our heart's affection on God himself. Again, we reduce the idea of faith to something like positive thinking or hoping for the best, but the idea of seeking the Lord carries with it something so much more. Artazuria, a pastor, puts it this way in one of my favorite quotes. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought, thought upon what? God and his promises. Isn't this exactly what Jehoshaphat does? More than half of his prayer is devoted simply to rehearsing what he knows true about God. What he knows to be true about God. It's as if he's reminding himself and his people by rehearsing some of these facts, that one, this is the God of our fathers, he says. A God who is not merely my God, but has been my people's God since he first chose us as his own. This is also a God who sits in heaven, he says. This means that this is a God who doesn't hunger. This is a God who does not get sick. He doesn't have to travel a long ways to get to me. Who better could hear my prayers and answer? But this is also a God who rules not just one nation, but all of them, no matter how strong the enemies might appear, no matter how big and intimidating they might seem to be, they belong to him, and they cannot do anything unless he allows it. Unless they forget it, God holds 
power and might in his grip. Where does power and might come from in the first place? It comes from his hand. He pulls seas in two, according to the Bible. He darkens the sun. He even raises the dead. Whatever happens, it does not happen because God is too weak. Jehoshaphat carefully, deliberately, intentionally thinks upon what is true about God, rehearsing it back to God, as if, in a sense, as if these facts about God are more real than the circumstances in front of him. Don't we often get this backwards, though, don't we? Uh, that To think that our circumstances are all that matter, and it's then because our circumstances are all that matter, then we determine from them that God himself can't be trusted. But Jehoshaphat, he thinks upon God first, as God's nature and character as being more real than his own limited perception of what he sees with his two eyes. But Jehoshaphat also then thinks upon God's promises, specifically God's promises to give this land where they were to God's people and the great lengths that God would go to to guarantee that they would have this land. It wasn't called the promised land for no reason. It was called because he had promised and would come through on that promise again and again for them. But he also thinks upon another promise, another gift from God, the temple, a massive gift secured by another unchangeable, unbreakable, unrearrangeable covenant promise. The guarantee and inbreaking of God's presence in the world. It is that presence that made the promised land good. And God had also gone to great lengths to secure that presence, establishing a sacrificial system for them by which sins which normally would have not allowed them to enter that presence without being killed on the spot, which normally would have ended their relationship, a sacrificial system by which those could be atoned for, forgiven. They, wouldn't know, they would no longer be on the wrong side of justice, but they would instead be able to go to him as those who worship him, as though they would even be called his friends or consider him their friend. After all, Jehoshaphat argues, hasn't, hadn't God promised his presence for days exactly like this one? If they would just seek him out, didn't he say that if here where his presence was found, if they would come here desperate and waiting, didn't he say that he would hear and save according to verse 9? Well, they're here they are, desperate and waiting. Jehoshaphat, what he's doing, he's thinking upon God's character and God's promises before he even mentions the state that they're in, before he even makes a request. He is filling his heart, his mind, and his imagination by what is true about his God and his word. It's interesting. You listen to other prayers in the scriptures, and this same pattern emerges. Take the Lord's Prayer, a very famous one, for example. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? I'm going to ask for some audience participation on this. So what's the first words? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Great work on that. Okay, so think about that. The very first words of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just, hey God, I need something. It begins with God himself. What is true? That he is our Father. And where is he located? He's in heaven. And what is the first request that's made of that prayer? That his name would be treated as holy, hallowed. In fact, it's a great distance into the Lord's Prayer before you get anything like um, uh, give us this day our daily bread. But isn't that the first thing often we come to in prayers? We come for our daily bread. God teaches us instead to come with what's true about him. 
What are the things he is most concerned about? Why? Well, because without the nature, character, and promises of God at the forefront of our, na- of our minds, you know what happens is we end up praying in really foolish ways. In fact, I'd say we often be, end up praying very small prayers. Why? Because we, when we aren't uh, actually all that confident of God's compassion and power, when we're not that confident of God's bigness and our smallness, we end up asking for very small things. Things we just need a, a bit of help in. Things we're certain won't inconvenience God too much. And this is also why we end up giving up on our requests so quickly. Now, what's important, it's important to say that here, what Jehoshaphat prays is guided directly by what God has revealed about his power, about his purposes and his promises. Jehoshaphat isn't calling for his wildest dreams. He is, a, he is asking for what he already knows that God cares about and has committed himself to. It turns out, when we know these things, these are actually the largest and best things we could pray for. But we will not know what we should pray for, what we should even feel so bold as to argue with God for, as Jehoshaphat does, unless we know who it is we are praying to and what he is for. This kind of deliberate faith knows and rehearses what is true about God before it gets to any sort of request. Only then can it make its request with boldness. The second thing that stands out about this prayer is not just the deliberate faith, but the honest desperation. Just this past weekend, I heard our youngest screaming for help, screaming, our, our baby. Now she's just figuring out how to be mobile, and I, I figured she had just fallen over, maybe on the rug next to me, but she was not there anymore. Uh, normally my stomach would have dropped at something like this, but believe it or not, this is not the first time that something like this has happened to our kids. And so I thought enough to check, uh, and my, I saw a little hand and face peeking out from underneath our coffee table. She had rolled herself underneath and now is screaming bloody murder, screaming for help. Now, what could my daughter do for herself in that circumstance? Absolutely nothing except cry. You know, it's something, it's something about crisis that focuses our minds and hearts There is something about crisis that reveals just how fragile my life and my emotions are. Just how desperately I am in need of God all the time. And the desperation that crisis produces in me, it focuses me like a child trapped under the coffee table screaming for their parents' help. As a culture, you know, we love authenticity, at least we say we do. I think we really struggle to actually be authentic. We, when it comes down to it, hide so much of our lives. I think of my generation, particularly on social media, and as a culture, we punish one another ruthlessly when the image cracks. Am I the only one who is nervous every single time I post something on Facebook or Instagram that it will be taken out of context, used against me in some way, or worse yet, prove that I'm really not all that impressive? The thing is, Christians have a unique ability to be authentic. 
genuinely authentic. Now, that may not be your experience of religious people, but the last thing a Christian should do is pretend like their life isn't, is, they, should, they shouldn't pretend that their life is put together. They shouldn't have to pretend that they aren't really a mess of doubts of, and suffering and uncertainty. They shouldn't have to pretend that life isn't really hard and that they're not often sure about what to do. Now, this doesn't give us license to be cynics or pessimists, but there is a great freedom in being honest and desperate, especially if what we have said about God is actually true. Just notice the last statement of verse 12, which we've already read and we named this series after. Listen to the whole verse this time. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? So he's getting to this request. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Notice, how does the king describe himself? I love this. Against the great horde, we are powerless. Can you imagine any president ever saying something like that? Your boss ever saying something like that? Notice what he says next, though. We... Don't know what to do. I mean, wow. This is, doesn't he care about uh, a saving face? I, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've thought these things, but scarcely admitted them. Won't people lose confidence in them? I mean, isn't this a slap in the face to everyone who's come to him to command them? I mean, what do you mean we don't know what to do, oh king? Isn't this why you're king? And yet Jehoshaphat can make the first statement because the second is true. He can say, we don't know what to do because our eyes are on you. Not on his experience, not on his best laid plans, not on the size of his troops. His eyes are not on his circumstances and they are certainly not on himself. This is not about his reputation after all. This is about God's reputation and God is the only one who cares enough and can do enough to help. What an opportunity then for God himself to show off. Which leads again to our second point. If prayer is the strategy, God is the game plan. Picture it again with me. All of Judah, including little kids, stand before their king, knowing disaster is on the way. Do you think they were confused by Jehoshaphat? They'd come to him to defend them. Certainly, he had some plan up his sleeve, but now their king is saying in front of them, we don't know what to do, and now looking for an answer from heaven. Well, an answer does actually come in verse 13 from a man named Jehaziel, a Levite turned prophet, God's temporary mouthpiece, and what does God say? Do not be afraid. Well, that's easier said than done. Perhaps God then has some game plan up his sleeves. Are they going to march around the uh, troops seven times? Maybe launch a sneak attack in the dead of night. But God gives them no game plan. Or perhaps it's better to say that God's game plan is himself. Look at the end of verse 15. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. God is the game plan. 
And what will be Israel's role in all of this? Well, verse 17 tells us they will stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord. Not hold your position and fight, but hold your position and see. He even says right before this, you will not need to fight in this battle. Let me ask you, how much work then does it take to see something? God does not need, in other words, uh, he does not need our help to win. Now, sometimes he may want us to exercise our faith by taking action, but so often the action he wants us to take is to wait and see. Notice, he doesn't tell them what he will do next. He doesn't tell them what plan he has in store. He doesn't tell them how he will save. He doesn't tell them that he will, as will come in the following verses, which we're not going to give explicit attention to. He doesn't tell them that he will, he will actually miraculously turn their enemies on one another. He doesn't tell them that the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the, Ma and the Munites are the tools of their own destruction, that they will turn on one another, and not a single drop of Israelite blood Ju uh, or, um, yeah, uh, the life of Judah will be shed. He doesn't even tell them that the spoils of war that are left behind will, spend, will, be, will take three days for them to collect. Collecting spoils from a war that they did not fight. He doesn't tell them any of this. Instead, he simply tells them, I will be with you. But friends, that is sometimes all God tells us in our fears that the Lord will be with you. But then again, this is all the reassurance we need. After all, we have more proof than Jehoshaphat and the soldiers in Judah had. We have more proof that God can be trusted, that God really is our safety, that he always acts for our joy. Because in Jesus, he has done exactly that. In Jesus' death upon the cross, God took what appeared to be his enemy's victory and used it against them. The one who seemed to be defeated, Jesus, on that cross, actually, through the cross, won. His death secured the death of death itself and the defeat of the powers of darkness. He worked his enemy's plans against them. But that's not all that the gospel accomplished. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So one of the most important prophecies in the Bible about the Messiah, an anointed one, a rescuer God would send to his people. But the, what this verse tells us is that because this Messiah would pour out his soul to death in order to bear the sins of many, he wasn't just numbered with the transgressors, it calls them, or the rebels, another word for that, like you and me, 
He turns those rebels into friends. He defends them. He shares with them the spoils of war. The New Testament expands this idea, this idea of Jesus sharing with us, even his enemies, the spoils of his war, as the promise of life with him. That's the spoils. A world full of, or I should say, free of grief and loss and full of all things good. Friends, in Jesus, God If you are a Christian, God has fought for you. If you belong to him, it's because he won and you now have real rest. A a rest more real than any of the days that Jehoshaphat and his people would see. And Christians, let's not forget that our role in the process wasn't because we were beside Jesus in that battle. In a sense, we weren't even the Israelites now trembling in fear. We were the very enemies of God that God chose to make his friends. And Jesus has shared the spoils of that war with us. His victory parade brings back an inheritance that we did not expect or contribute to, which Peter refers to as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It won't be collected in three days as massive as the gift is in this passage. It won't be collected even in a hundred days, but day after day for eternity. This is the grace we have in Christ and the reason we can be so confident in the face of our uncertainties. The reason why the words, the Lord will be with you, can give us such comfort even when God does not tell us what he is going to do. Would you put your faith in him? If you're not a Christian, that may be the very reason you came today, that God brought you here today. You'd give up on trying to make your own future, make your own safety, trying to protect yourself, instead to rest in him, the one who fights on your behalf and doesn't wait for you to contribute to the process. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ who has already won the greatest battle, forgiveness for your sin, so that you might enter the assurance that he will now only work for your joy. In a sense, we've already seen the greatest victory. We know now that whatever he does next, he does for the good of those who love him. And we know that in the end, the fear of God is going to come to all people. But then, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait? It's actually quite simple. Using the example of our passage, we worship. That's actually the third point today. If the strategy is prayer and God is the game plan, we worship while we wait. I know I already spoiled the ending about what happens here, but I actually want to go back to the middle of our passage where the prophet answers Jehoshaphat and uh, it tells him of God's miraculous victory. I want to see what happens after that. I want to see what comes in the middle. Now again, Jehoshaphat has just admitted very honestly, uh, our eyes are on you, God. Don't exactly have anywhere else to go. To which God responds truthfully, but very ambiguously, the Lord will be with you tomorrow in battle. What then does Jehoshaphat do? Given that little amount of details, 
Does he send the people home? Well, I guess I'll check back in with you tomorrow, folks. Get a good night's rest. No, they, it says the, the entire nation, including Jehoshaphat, worshipped. Verse 18 tells us the king and all his people fell down and worshipped the Lord. There are four things that I want to point out about this worship, and don't worry, I'm going to point them out very quickly for us. The first is that this worship was corporate. This worship was corporate. No, it doesn't just tell us that uh, the king praised God or that there were some who were just really feeling it, feeling it or those who had a, a great set of pipes and they led a time of special music. No, just as Jehoshaphat had gathered the people to pray together, he now leads his people to sing together. Now, it's no secret, I, um, I sing really loud. I sing really loud. I always have. Our family loves to sing. Uh, some... Uh, might prefer for, uh, with my voice to turn it down a notch. Uh, but the thing is, whether you think you have a great voice or not, God wants you to sing. Just think about what you are doing when you are singing. It's not just because Christians do that kind of weird thing or because we like to sing along with the radio. Uh, what you're doing when you're singing is you're actually saying things back to God and to one another about what is true about the God that we worship and what is true about what he has done supremely through Jesus Christ. This is why we put so much thought, your leaders put so much thought into the kind of songs that we sing. We want to put good words in your mouths, words that don't orbit around how special or cute I am. We want to sing about how glorious God is. In singing, we are teaching our hearts and one another what we believe. It should sober us. We should tremble a bit when we sing. You are teaching others. You should care a lot about what is sung then, that we're not singing foolish things. What are we teaching others? When others show up, what are they learning about what we believe from our songs? In fact, if you are not a believer, I encourage you to listen to the songs intentionally, to read the lyrics and find out what they mean. Our songs should say what Christians believe and have believed as our faith has been passed down generation after generation. I recognize there are many songs you may not prefer. In fact, probably the good test of a, of a set list in a church is that, there are some, that everyone is a little grumpy about some of the songs. The thing is, is that what matters most is not the style. I think we can see that, if this is true about what singing is. Definitely, the, the style doesn't matter as much as the words do. God deserves to be told back what is true. And I have to tell you, your fellow congregants need it. I know from experience, many of you, including myself, show up on a Sunday morning and it's very hard to sing, but hearing my brothers and sisters say the things that I want to believe are true, that I want to cling to a little bit tighter, that that ministers to me, that serves me, sometimes even more than the sermon itself does. You are loving others when you sing. I recognize, again, that worship isn't always what we prefer. I should say worship isn't just exclusively singing, but it is a form of it. But God does deserve to be told what is true. And you'll hear us say around here, our most important instrument is not the guitar, it's not Chris or Grace, it's the voice of God's people singing together. Second, this worship is passionate. 
Notice what verse 19 tells us. The Levites, who were responsible for leading Israel in singing, it was part of their job, and also in providing for the temple, one of their jobs was also to perform these choirs that would lead others to sing. Uh, They stood up to praise the Lord. So as everybody's falling on their faces, now the Levites now stand to their feet and praise the Lord. What does it say? With a very loud voice. Don't you love that? A very loud voice. Let's say, I love it doesn't say like a very good voice. Okay, a very loud voice. It probably was pretty good. But nonetheless, friends, what burdens, I have to ask you, are you carrying right now? What fears do you have for this year? Where are you left saying, I don't know what to do? Sometimes the most important thing we can do is to sing and to sing loud. To drown out all of our self-pity and our self-concern with words about God, with what he has promised to do. It is no wonder that Paul in Philippians tells us to fight back anxiety of all things by thinking about what is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Friends, our world is full of conflict and arrogance and mistruth. We need to fill our heart and imagination with what is true and good and beautiful. And there is no one more true or good or beautiful than our God. And he is the only one who deserves praise. He not only deserves praise, we need it. We need to praise him. True passion is actually not so much dependent upon our fickle emotions as it is dependent on the overflow of our deep sense of need. The overflow of a real sense of dependence upon God. Passion flows from desperateness, desperation. Saying, I I don't know what to do. I don't have what it takes. I'm a mess left to my own devices. I need you. Third, worship is expectant. Notice verse 20 and 21. The following day, the day of the battle, the king addresses his people. He's readying them for battle. Again, a battle the Lord says they will not have to fight. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. The sense of certainty This sense of certainty that he carries might make us a little uncomfortable, to be honest. I mean, how does he know how things are going to turn out? Well, he doesn't actually exactly know how things are going to turn out specifically, does he? But he does know something, something more important. A God worth believing in. And perhaps to help them, to help his people believe in this God, he sets them to sing. He puts the Levites in front of, the, of his military, marching them forward for, uh, first, so that that sound might wash over those people and remind them as they march forward with all that is unclear, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. It is God's character that makes Jehoshaphat confident, even expectant of great things. Even when he doesn't know what the future holds, he knows his God is a God of steadfast love and that his love endures forever. And Christian, you can know this too, even when you don't know much. Your God is a God of steadfast love and his love endures forever. 
and church, even as we don't know what the future holds for our church. What do we need to hear? That our God is a God of steadfast love, and his love endures forever. Unless this is perhaps the most surprising, this worship is militant. We've said that it's many things, that it's corporate, passionate, expectant, but what do, we mean, what do I mean militant? I want you to look at a really important verse, verse 22. Notice the strangeness of this language. We might miss it if we read too quickly. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush. Friend, you want to do something about your situation? You want to be obedient, but you're not sure where to start? Worship God. I know there is at least someone here that wonders, okay, surely, pastor, you can give us something more than a pray more and worship more. Wondering to ourselves, is there something more active I can do? I get it, it can seem passive, but prayer and worship are not passive at all. It's active. Prayer, you see, we talk about prayer as if it's something that just changes us. We talk about prayer as if it just reminds us what is true. And I've said all that in this sermon, but here's the thing. Our changeless God has determined in his sovereign kindness to respond to prayer. He wants us to ask. He wants us to depend. He wants us, he wants to show that he is ready to provide. He may provide differently than you expected, but he loves to answer the prayers of his people. Sometimes as James puts it, why do you, why do you, uh, uh, why don't you not have? Because you do not ask. Because you ask with wrong motives. Friends, the Lord, as a good father, knows what we need and wants to give it. But so often his people do not ask because they do not know that father. And friends, I say that as someone who needs to hear those realities too. Prayer is the strategy. Strategy for our church, strategy for our personal life as we head into this year. So you're making all of your plans What's your plan for prayer? The kind of prayer that makes you uncomfortable, the kind of prayer where you're waiting upon the Lord, not putting your confidence in your own strategery. Friends, God is that game plan. The reason we can be so prayerful is because we know our God and we know who, what he is for and we know that the one who has secured us for himself, who has already done all things so that we might belong to him. Do we really doubt that he would work for our joy even now in these smaller circumstances? And while we wait, we worship. It's the most important thing we do, the most important thing we'll continue tonight in, the most important thing we have to encourage one another in. And as we set our eyes on him, what might God do? Would you pray? And Lord, we uh, ask you to help us today because we are a people who are prayerless. I say that as probably the chief amongst the prayerless ones. We need your help. To be desperate enough to pray. To be expectant enough to pray well. To pray for the things that, that correspond to your nature, your purposes, your promises. Would you show off in ways in our personal lives and in our corporate life that it would be so clear that you're the one who did it and that you did it in response to prayer that you'd receive the glory that you were due. That those who are not yet Christians, that they would, able, they would be able to see that provision and see a church so desperate and united in prayer that it would cause them to, it would be so disrupted, they would ask for the hope that is within us. They would see supernatural intervention 
by a God who loves those he's purchased as his own. And Lord, we, uh, we know that it's gonna be easy for us to push prayer aside when the anxieties and fears come. We don't know what the headlines have, but would this church be one that refuses to get off our knees and helps others to do the same? We pray for Christ's sake alone. Amen.